All right, guys, welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. We are back with another exercise mechanics roundtable featuring Skinny Gaz, Lord Skinny Gaz, and Lord James Sutton. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, so today we're, we're just going to talk um, mainly about the, compa- can, well, basically run a comparison between free weight movements, so barbells and dumbbells and machines, and then body weight movements, and kind of explore some of the different thought processes and um, beliefs surrounding these different types and different tools um, of training. So, yeah, I mean, before we get kicked off, give everyone a chance to just update everyone on what everyone's been doing. I don't know if people care about that, but I care to hear what, like, Gaz, what have you been up to, mate? How's life in the lockdown? Life in the lockdown is good. Um, so, basically, you know, I'm, I'm a student and work online. So basically everything that I do that's actually important involves me sitting at a laptop. Um, so I don't even have to go anywhere. And to be honest, being locked at home at my desk actually basically just forces me to do all the things I need to do anyway. So, you know, if anyone is a student, you'll know that you waste a lot of time in college, just kind of sitting around you know between a lecture you got an hour and it's like oh it's not enough to do anything meaningful um so you just end up kind of having a chat or something that happens a lot of the time so for me that's basically all just been wiped out and life feels pretty efficient so while i would hate to make light of a pretty awful situation especially in the uk i see you guys just passed ten thousand deaths which is insane um there are some positives for some of us you know some of us have that bit of privilege i think so how's life with you guys very good. very good for myself in a similar, similar way. I'm just, I say, in a um, weird way, taking advantage of the situation. Yeah. Uh, it took me a week or so to find a routine that, that works for us. Um, but I think I've got it now in terms of balancing family life with a little one, um, working from home more than normal, obviously. Uh, and then, yeah, still being super productive, but still trying to have time with my, my little boy for me. Mm. Nice. And you, Luke? Yeah, just um, much the same. Getting into a routine, and and the, you know, weirdly, it was not even a, that big a change. I mean, I was purely online anyway. The biggest change for me was um, obviously the lack of an ability to get to a gym. So now I can just train at home and generally just open up a lot more time in the day to be more productive, um, despite being bogged down in things that I don't want to be bogged down in at the moment <laughs> but, the, um, but no so all in all we're um I think yeah you know not to make light of a of a pretty horrible situation but things could be worse um for me anyway yeah so people are going to think what a dickhead for saying that but you know <laughs> anyway so yeah so let's kick it off then so I mean who wants to kick off I don't know which one we'd want to look at first, but I think the main, well, I mean, we're going to discuss okay. a rough comparison between the three. Yeah. So I, I think, I think a good place to kind of just start with the conversation is like basically what I was saying to you guys before, you know, for, for those of, of the listeners here that maybe regular tune, regularly tune into the muscle mentors, uh, you may, some of you may have done um, RTS in London with Michael Goulden, or maybe you've done it in the US or something. And basically, like we, we use this terminology of exercise mechanics. And very often when we start to talk about that, there's almost this assumption that some of us are thinking, you know, really deep about exercise, about its fundamental components, um, about the specifics of every exercise. However, that's actually 
very often a very high level conversation um, or it can be versus a lot of the typical kind of personal training and, and fitness rhetoric, you know? So a lot of the, a lot of the questions, if you were to Google, um, should I do a bench press or a push up? You would, if you were to Google that, you probably get some pretty like low level answers, things that are based on poor reasoning. They don't actually ever refer to exercise mechanics. So what I thought would be good is if we, if we had that, this conversation, um, kind of speaking to that trainer who's maybe come into the fitness industry and they're now starting to ask these questions about exercise. So the first thing to think about there is that when we talk about exercise, I think all of us will agree with some sort of loose definition, or at least it, it's the definition I like to think of. It's kind of like we're basically trying to um, apply force to a biological system to get some, sorts of a, some sort of adaptation. That's basically the way that, that we would think about it. And what that means in the real world can be hundreds thousands of different variations but it's all it all fundamentally comes down to this question of force so what what i think is good to to do is just to strip all the clothes off make it all look naked you know forget that there's a barbell there and think about all right what is actually going on because when you're doing a push-up or you're doing a barbell press or you're doing a dumbbell press or a machine press fundamentally you're just moving your body against force and if you can start to think of it like that I at least find that people become a little bit less dogmatic about exercise because there are things that do go beyond the force question. Like for example, accessibility, enjoyment, adherence, et cetera, all those things are really important. But if you can strip it back, I find that your exercise reasoning gets a lot better. Um, so is that something that you guys can relate to when you're thinking about exercise? Is that your kind of starting point or, or, or is, is that making sense at all? I'd say yeah, it completely makes makes sense. Um, but even as say to try and strip it back, uh, not necessarily another level, but yeah. we know that it all comes down to force. Um, but the beginner PT, the more advanced general population client who's listened to this, they still come in in a sense in different like camps. Mm-hmm. So you get that the PT who maybe is competes or been a bodybuilder or something like that, and everything within the bodybuilding world. Here's a certain thought process around optimal. Then you get the, the PT who's come from a sporting background and they've more maybe moved more into a bit of a CrossFit type world. So then they've got a certain bias of what's possible. And then you just get the person who was, I say, maybe overweight and therefore general, general population. Um, and they're still obviously massively confused about what's optimal. They still think training your abs will get your abs showing more, more mm-hmm. help get a six pack. Um, so I'd say even more from a basic point of view when we look at each one of these different groups each one is going to have a more of a bias to say that crossfit or obviously more towards barbells the bodybuilder maybe more towards machines that general population type client maybe more towards movement based stuff or functional based stuff or, or something like that um, and we know we can break each one of them down and look at the forces within there and look at the movements, the muscles, and et cetera, everything that's involved within that. But even at that very early stage, they're already stuck in separate camps. Mm-hmm. And within that, that's going to give their bias in terms of well, what they prefer or maybe what they think's better, we could say, whether that's dumbbells, barbell, body weights, machines. Um, mm-hmm. And we've got to take that bias and then, in a sense, not change their thought process, but give them a deeper understanding, hopefully, then they can hopefully see a bigger picture and realize, yeah, one's not necessarily better than the other. Mm. Um, It's about obviously what's optimal for them, what's optimal for their client, what's optimal for sort of progress moving forward, um, whatever their their goal may be. Mm. And that's 
Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, carry on, Luke. No, I was just saying, I, th- I, I fully agree. And I think there's a lot of it that won't even come back to the the tools they're using. It won't necessarily be that they particularly enjoyed the like the barbell or machines or something like that. They might not have experience with certain things, but I think the experience of the exercise themselves or the culture that they're kind of exposed to will have a massive impact there. So I think, and that's the thing, like exercises culture to a large degree. You know, and everyone's going to have like respond and gravitate towards different cultures. And I think, you know, it's ultimately what's going to be comfortable for a lot of people. And it might, again, it might have nothing to do with, you know, they they might not necessarily place a lot of weight on, you know, pun intended, on like the actual tools they're using as opposed to the environment they're going with and the people they're doing it with. And, they, and it just so happens that they've formed a really tight community that happens to do CrossFit. Or, or whatever it is and you know i think that can also play a big role but that can be a good thing and a bad thing because obviously it's a case of what is comfortable for someone and you know ensures they keep coming back to have more of that experience might not necessarily be optimal for the goals um might not satisfy them it might put them at risk of certain things if they're not careful um so i think having an opportunity where people can have something that obviously satisfies their kind of what they want from a cultural perspective as well as satisfies their goals would be a very good thing as well which is often quite hard to achieve because people don't necessarily see those two like together they don't necessarily put them in the same in the same category to some degree yeah, no, man, I, I think that's that's an incredibly important point that i think like does not get enough discussion because like if we take the example of of I know, I know this is going a bit off track, but it's very relevant to the listeners. But if we think about uh, British bodybuilding, for example, like that carries a certain culture with it. And it's really important to, while we look at these things in a kind of agnostic way, while saying, all right, this is exercise, this is force, this is a moment arm, etc. It's important to keep that in mind within the culture. Because if we think, if we think of someone like, uh, let's say, uh, AJ Morris, right? He's just going to be my example because he's a mutual friend. He's a good guy. I think he engages in good practices. Um, so like if we look at AJ Morris, right? He's, he's someone that he's, he's, he's reached out to, to you guys. I'm pretty sure in terms of information, he's taken some stuff from you. Um, I think he, he acknowledges uh, the role of, of things like exercise mechanics. You can see he's willing to change his practices over time. However, he does so very much within that framework of respecting British bodybuilding culture. And you can see that, you know, he takes them on board things from, from Dorian. And there's, there's that, there's that, there's that kind of bodybuilding culture of like, wearing monster factory and stuff like that that you can't divorce from the exercise because it's actually what it's actually what drives people to be inspired to exercise and even if someone is doing something like uh, they're doing some sort of barbell row there's this sort of feeling like you know bro i'm a bit like dorian now you know dorian said you know that that kind of thing and i think that can lead you astray at times because obviously if you're just if you're so entrenched in a given culture that you're never willing to step outside and ask questions um, or to consider how to come up, come around a certain problem. I think that's probably not a great way of, of, of using your, your culture or respecting your culture. But if you can ingrain yourself within a certain culture, take all of the benefits from it in terms of like, you know, taking that motivation, taking that inspiration, having a base for how you do things, but while still being willing to say, you know, I've been doing these Dorian roles for a while, but what I've noticed is that my lower back is actually the limiting factor in this exercise. It's not my lats. So maybe I can consider using a machine. You know, you have to be willing to step beyond that culture, take the benefits from it and still, you know, 
strip things back and, and step outside it. I think I think that's really important. Yeah, and much as we laugh at like the analogy there of saying, yeah, because Doran did it, it must be best. But that is still such the sort of the view with so many people. And if you go around just any commercial gym, the movements you see guys and girls doing to try and sort of build tissue for, for bodybuilding purposes um, are very much the movements like they were done back then. Yeah. So at yeah, our level, yeah, in a sense, we may laugh at that, but that is still the general, that sort of belief for so many people. 100%. Mm. I think it's funny because Tom Purvis, like we we get doing this um, mentorship with with Integra at the moment with Michael, and when we're watching all the the RTS, I don't know if they're the RTS mastery videos or just the RTS videos, but there's a point in one of them where Tom um, kind of likens exercise experience to the flavour of exercise, and how we we you know what we like isn't going to be necessarily embraced by everyone. And that's perfectly normal and we can't let our bias kind of influence what our clients do. And also we can't then like ask, for instance, a client what they want ahead of time if they've never tasted it. But again, you know, some people would not kind of disregard that and they'd be like, oh, well, Dorian did this, so it must be good. I've never done it myself, but, you know, Dorian did it, so it must be perfect for me as well. And again, if you kind of liken it to the flavor thing, you'd never go into you know, if we called it flavors, like you're not going to go into an ice cream shop and be like, oh, what flavor did Dorian Yates have? And they'd be like, chocolate. Be like, Sweet, I'm going to have that one. I don't care about all the others. I'm just going to have the one that Dorian had. You know, it's the thing of, so I think people need to also be willing to step back and kind of play their own, you know, do their own scientific analysis and kind of play the field and, and look at various um, different ways of doing exercise and figure out what actually is best and consult with people that would have that agnostic view that you've said that you mentioned just now that can really break it down and understand exercise what it really is and not be too influenced by the bias while still ex acknowledging that bias and the culture needs to be there if that makes sense would you agree yeah absolutely and, and i think acknowledging and acknowledging the fact that not everyone can learn exercise in this kind of like like no one no one ever like although we talk about it in this manner now no one learns exercise from the perspective of first being like right i'm going to know everything i'm going to learn everything about newtonian mechanics and and force first and then i'm going to learn about anatomy and then i'm going to see how i can apply those things so you can't you, we can't pretend that exercise exists in a vacuum because it exists with a certain culture and different cultures vary and people have to come into it with that bias so for example if we're talking about dorian and the ice cream right Dorian loved chocolate ice cream. It seems like most British bodybuilders love chocolate ice cream. So, you know, is it likely that I might like chocolate ice cream? Like, yeah, for sure. Like, well, it's not a bad bet. Like, I don't think it's the best person. I'm a salt to caramel guy. But chocolate ice cream, you know, might, might be fantastic. So there's an element of, it, of that being like that it is actually a safe bet. You know, I mean, if you do barbell rows, are you probably going to get a, bit of a bigger back? For sure, man. Like you're, you're not just going to get really strong at barbell rows and not make any hypertrophy progress. And most people are going to like chocolate ice cream, you know, so th we have to respect that as well. Like I couldn't, I couldn't learn everything about um, chemistry and food science and suddenly figure out uh, what type of ice cream I like. Like that'd be a dumb way of going about it. So it's really important to keep that in mind when we think about exercise too, that people start exercising with certain exercises because of path dependence. So it's what everyone before them did um, because of cultural influences, because of sporting backgrounds, et cetera. So we, can, we can't totally divorce those things. And I, I think it would actually be a really boring way of living your life. Like, I mean, you could, you could almost analyze analogize it in a similar way to 
to religion. I mean, if you if you think about like the way that the, the way that religion works, a lot of the time, like no no one no one grows up learning how they should behave in the world in a in like a real scientific manner. Like, oh, we studied this and then we found this, so you should do this. It's more like you get you get these stories and kind of myths passed down to you as a child, or there's these simple rules, the Ten Commandments, or whatever your religion happens to be, or what was taught in school. You know, this is the way the things that have classically been done, and these seem like they're useful heuristics you know, most of the time. Um, but, but much like you shouldn't be like stuck to the barbell row and not willing to do a machine, like just like we shouldn't be saying, all right, there's, there's a lot of good in religion, so we should definitely keep throwing homosexuals off buildings. Like, please, no, can we maybe not do that? That'd be useful. Um, similar thing when it comes to exercise. So these things are related to all areas of life. Yeah, <clears throat> and I think that's a good, it's quite a good way of looking at it with them. Um, because you know you liken it to, you know, if everyone does the whole chocolate thing, everyone's like, oh yeah, I'm not going to try any of the others there. But maybe they dismiss some of the other concepts before they know enough about them or before they've even experienced them. And I think they need that experience to actually understand it. Because you, you're right, you know, people could learn a lot about exercise, and it's the same. Like I, for instance, have never done CrossFit, but I would be confident to analyze a lot of the forces that people are exposed to and that sort of thing, and be able to maybe judge the utility of that, whether that's ethically right or not, is is um, is debatable because it's like that thought experiment. I mean, I know you're a fan of philosophy, Gaz, but the um, I've forgotten the actual name of the thought experiment, name of the girl, but the the one with there's a girl who's raised in a she's only exposed to black and white. She's in a black and white room, but she knows absolutely everything there is to know about the human mind and what you know every different. Um, where it can interpret information so theoretically she should know what it's like to see the color red despite only ever seeing black and white but then one day she's let out of this room and she sees color for the first time and the question is does she learn something new despite knowing everything everything theoretically kind of you know everything theoretical about that and kind of the ins and outs of the human mind I mean most people agree that she does learn something new so I think if people are going to take the the line of oh it's cool i study exercise mechanics i know that crossfit is shit or i know that such and such is shit until you've actually done it and you've experienced it and you know really what it's about you're not necessarily going to be able to make such a judgment just from knowing the, in, like, the in-depth science of it which i think is an important thing to know and i think it's something that maybe we've been guilty of i know i've been guilty of saying stuff like oh that that exercise is rubbish but i've never actually done it so i don't know what it feels like I don't know the results it can um, produce over time, etc. So I think, yeah, I think having that that approach of um, not getting too dug in on the science and being able to experience stuff is probably a good idea. I don't know. Would you both agree? Hundred percent. Like I think, I think like that's that that's kind of what it means to be a professional and, and a scientific thinker is, is like being willing to kind of look at all of those different perspectives and ask yourself, is there something that I could potentially be missing? You know, because for example, when we talk about push-ups, we could come at it from the perspective of mechanics and anatomy and physiology, etc., and say that, we could be saying to our clients over and over again, you know, it's not about chasing sweating. It's not about chasing heart rate. And, and, and that's all because we're coming at it from the perspective of, right, we look at everything through a resistance training lens. We look at everything through the lens of force, through the lens of specific adaptations, et cetera. Whereas for some of our clients, like it, it happens where people are like, look, I just love the feeling of getting a sweat on. I know it's not related to my, because I've, I've had that conversation with clients before where, where I've had to say, you know, 
look, the goal is not sweating. That's not the goal of exercise. But then they say, but it is for me. <laughs> like it, I enjoy that feeling. So, I mean, I'm not going to keep coming into the gym every day if I don't get that feeling of, of sweating and feeling like I've worked out. And I think you can meet in the middle with people there, but it's important to, to actually appreciate, like, like to use your terminology as it relates to Tom Purvis, that exercise experience, like what flavor someone actually likes. And the exercise experience is not just about a feeling within a muscle in a contracted position. It's not just about that. If we come from the bodybuilding lens, we think that is the case. But if you were to come at that, at the exercise experience from a CrossFit perspective, it could be actually the, the social element. That feeling when the bar's above your head in a snatch and you're absolutely goosed and you see your partner across the way and they're fucked too. And that kind of feeling of camaraderie. Like very often, we, can, we don't see that in, in, in kind of bodybuilding and hypertrophy culture because it very much is this... I'm a lone wolf. I'm fighting the battle on my own on the leg press kind of thing, you know, and it's like I'm, I'm against everyone um, and people get pleasure from that. So I think looking beyond your own culture can, can really be insightful here. But, but yeah, we're going to get into a deep physical culture conversation here if we're not careful. <laughs> no, 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 it was good though. And, it's, and that's where like, you know, another quote from Tom, the kind of nice way to sum all this stuff up is that I really liked when I was watching these videos is the best way to win a debate is to understand the opponent's arguments and stances better than they do, which mm-hmm. I was like, I like that. So there's a lot of people that dismiss certain things and concepts, but they don't necessarily understand it in the, as well as they should. And I think, um, or they don't take into account certain things they should, um, such as the things you just mentioned, which I think is a very important aspect. Um, so yeah, that's quite a good introduction then. It is. It gives everyone a nice, um, a nice. Uh... Then really, I think all to summarise what we've covered there, we've got to look, understand the mechanics, understand the physiology, and understand the psychology. Yes, sir. Within each of them three topics, and that's then hopefully going to give us an unbiased opinion. And the sociology. <laughs> and, and theology. <laughs> oh, we could go on. Hello. <laughs> It's probably one of the deepest chats about exercise on podcast in existence. Sorry, what it's all about. <laughs> I like uh, it. But yeah, so like, I mean, as as we kind of move on in, in our discussion, then we can kind of begin to apply this to the current situation because I think a lot of the concerns that people have at the moment, and I know you guys have been putting out some great content to try and remedy this, is that people are not or people feel like they're not able to train in the way that they used to because of the COVID-19 lockdown. Um, And I mean, that's probably not going to end anytime soon. We're at least talking a matter of weeks, if not months before any people sit on their favorite Cybex leg extension, unless you're James and have your own, you know, Um, (laughs) but most people are not going to be able to avail of such luxuries. So most of us are uh, hanging around playgrounds, not in a creepy way, um, trying to do pull-ups, trying to do, uh, trying to do chin-ups, trying to do dips, etc. Um, and for a lot of people, it's, it's, it's kind of new. So, I mean, if we, if we kind of start with that, with that lens of like a basic pushing exercise, I think it's a useful way of, of working through things. So if we consider like a, a push-up versus a bench press versus a, some sort of machine press, uh, what Let's do you guys think? Cybex, a Cybex Eagle chest press. Just to- so, sorry, Cybex Eagle <laughs> chest press. <laughs> if we like, if we if we kind of start there, I think like a very a real surface level analysis is just to say that okay, all of those uh, all of those implements or tools are ways of applying force in such a way that the shoulder flexors, the shoulder horizontal adductors, you could say, um, are being challenged as, way, as well as a lot of other muscles. And, and that's, that's, that's basically like a, a surface level analysis, like, okay, they're all working 
the chest, we could say, and all the muscles. But what are the differences there? Like, is it okay, Luke, that I just do whatever I want? Does it matter? Yeah, done. Sweet. Podcast over. No. <laughs> no. Yeah, and, and that, I mean, it's a quality quality line to go down this because like, and, and we can, we'll get really into the ins and outs of it, but I think the thing that, I don't know if it needs to be said, probably does, but there isn't anything magical about free weights, machines, cables, etc. cetera. Um, they, they're incredible tools for sure. But squats um, are the best, aren't they? Oh yeah, for sure. That's true. Actually, exclude squats from this. <laughs> um, and it's, I actually wrote something similar in the in the ebook I'm writing at the moment. But like the utility and effectiveness of them, of like free weights machines in particular, and you know when you're using them correctly, is essentially down to the fact that they can provide, they may provide, you know, a very focused challenge to muscle tissue via characteristics such as you know specific path of motion efficient resistance profile or inefficient resistance profile depending on how you want to look at it um which can kind of create a very precise and appropriate challenge for muscle tissue depending on certain factors and then also the ability to use heavier loads which is something obviously now that you know being body weight wise you know limited to our bodies and stuff potentially we're not going to use for some people that's going to be too much for them in certain movements but what you know again that's kind of boiling it down through the mechanical lens of what ultimately do these things provide like there isn't anything inherently magic about them so what does it do from a mechanical what do they do from a mechanical perspective and, and it's ultimately those things i mean i'm sure we could add and extend that list even more um but but again when you when you boil it down of let's look at the actual path of motion of a push-up and a bench press and a machine press they're pretty much identical. The human body's going through the same thing, same, you know, same exact motion to, to a degree. Um, and it's, so it's a case of what exactly is different between each of those movements. And that's where you probably have to get stuck into the, the nitty gritty of things to actually make sense of it. Um, you know, what else do we have to manage? What, and you know, how is that all getting translated into a physiological response that's potentially better or worse in certain cases? Um, so where would we, I don't know, where would we go first? I think one of the first places for, I mean, to run look at this, uh, for the type of discussion we're going with at the moment, really is that the learning curve for each, with each exercise. Uh, if someone was to home at this moment in time to perform a push-up, a dip, uh, a dumbbell press or a barbell press, then mm-hmm. bring the machine press into it as well. Um, but what's the learning curve with each one of them? Yeah. If they've been stuck on machines, if they're relatively new to training or they haven't done too much free weight before and you go and suddenly get them doing dumbbell press at home because now they've got available dumbbells and everything they've done machine with machines before, that dumbbell is going to be all over the place. The skill requirement to do that compared to a push-up, where yes, there is still a guided path of motion during a dumbbell, but it's depending on the load they're using, that could still obviously bear in a position. But with a push-up, we've got a fixed path of motion with that, and then there's certain cues, internal thought processes that we could give our client to do, or we can give the person to do it. There's certain positionings that we can give them around the scapula, around the elbow position, around the shoulder position, etc., to try and help them perform that movement better and to get more out of that movement whereas a dumbbell they're more probably going to be worried about not hitting themselves in the head as they start getting to a point of fatigue yeah for, for me that's probably the, 
first thing that we're trying to almost educate our clients on that this is going to be easier for you to perform maybe before at home. I know you've got these dumbbells at home, but everything we've done maybe it's on machines before that you're probably better off going with a form of push up and then adjusting that appropriately um, for their level of strength at this moment in time and obviously within their range and etc. Um, rather than going straight into doing a seated dumbbell press or even worse on that shoulder press or something like that. Yeah. Uh, you can move so that's for me the, probably the first place that I would go with. Mm. Yeah, I, I think the, the push-up is actually such a beautiful exercise. You know, it's actually so underrated. And I think anyone that has been doing them with any degree of cueing will realize that it's probably the closest thing that you'll find to like a, a really good machine, even closer than I would say a barbell press or a dumbbell press. I think a push up is actually closer to a machine because like, if you think about the, the way that it works, like basically your floor is fixed and your, your feet are fixed. And like, to be honest, unless you're really weak, like your abs and your quads shouldn't really be limiting you too much. You know, the most of the time, if you're able to hold that kind of that, that steady position. Um, but like when we talk about a, a barbell, even though your hands are fixed on the bar, there's still the potential for the bar to fall left or right and um, to go up or down, you know, and, and anyone that has watched anyone uh, new to a barbell press will notice this like it's just because it's it just because the two hands are on the same implement doesn't mean it's stable you know it can still stability can be a, ma a major challenge there um whereas with a with a push-up you basically you basically end up fixed in this in in this this path of motion more or less like there is some freedom especially if you're not maintaining your body position or you're pushing more to one side um but it's actually quite a simple exercise to start to cue people really effectively on and i mean even if you're not um, able to do a full push-up, you can start from the knees here and make it super effective. And even if you're strong, and I mean, one of the things that that I watched, um, Michael Michael did this at RTS years ago, but but you, uh, Charlie McMillan has videos on Facebook about this as well. Um, and he would have been one of the instructors on on RTS uh, with Tom Purvis in, in, in the 2000s, if not the 90s, definitely the 2000s. But he puts, um, he, he has a video of him basically cueing people differently in push-ups. And, and I know most of you will have experienced this in the, in the past as well. That's where like the difference between trying to slide your hands in, you know, trying to slide your hands in towards each other versus sliding your hands out um, versus even sliding your hands up or whatever, and how you can actually play around so much with that. And here's this video at the IEFC. I can't remember the name of the, the conference, the Inland something fitness conference. Um, but basically what he's doing is he's tutoring people through different portions of the repetition. So for example, what I want you to do on the way down and people listening can, can try this in their spare time. When, when you're on the way down on the push up, what you want to do is try slide your hands in towards each other and take five seconds on the way down, hold at the bottom for two seconds, keep pushing in. And then on the way up, stop the pushing in and just, just push up as fast as you can. Or you could do pushing out. You could do pushing in on the concentric and not the eccentric, the eccentric and not the concentric, um, et cetera, et cetera. Point being, that even through the use of just simple cueing or what you could say is intent, you're kind of changing the way that the force is distributed within the exercise. Um, you're changing the stimulus that you're applying and you can make it ridiculously challenging even without having to do 40, 50, 60 reps. Um, personally, like I enjoy high rep push-ups, but you can easily make a set of 10 like really, really difficult um, without needing any progression and load because that's one of the things that I think some people find limiting is that it is difficult to put a weight in your back during a push-up. You can use a band, which is fantastic and even improves the exercise further. But even just with body weight, like I'd be surprised if some very strong people, you know, couldn't get flattened with a set of, of 10 reps that are, you know, five, two, three, two tempo or something, you know, all with intent. Like, I mean, that'd be 
pretty damn difficult, you know? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm very strong, but I can absolutely destroy myself like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, um, and, that, and that's the thing that you mentioned intention. I think that's such a, a you know, cool thing because we were talking mm. again like this last Friday in the group, um, you know, going through the orchestration process of exercise, you know, looking at all the internal um, aspects, looking at like joint function, muscle function, sensory function, resi- and then the actual role of resistance and the direction of the resistance and the magnitude of it and whether it's movable or Im- immovable, etc., and how intention affects all of those. So it can massively augment muscle function, could potentially inhibit it. Same with joint, you know, joint function, sensory awareness, etc. It all feeds back into one another, but obviously intention kind of massively influences those. And I think that's a tool that people can really, really use. And, and like Gaz said, attention is essentially how you're cueing someone, how you're thinking about doing an exercise and um, what, you know what additional um factors you're introducing like in the in the case of the bishop like we just said are you thinking about sliding your hands in and out along the floor you know manipulating friction um you know and i think that's even you know even on barbells and stuff like that even on machines that's something we can do it's often something that um you know especially when you look at friction it's present all the time and obviously it's like how our intention can then manipulate that and make an exercise a hundred times more challenging without actually changing any load on the bar. Um, and I think that's a, such a cool thing that people can start playing around with now when they don't have the ability to, um, you know, add a huge amount of load to some of these movements. Um, and, and I think, you know, we could, we could, we'll explore some other options there, but you know, what, um, what other kind of factors would you say, on, in the pushing movements it, it, from an intention perspective, maybe not so obviously. Are there any other ones we could look at there? Yeah, so like... Not from an intention perspective, from just from a body weight movement perspective in general, if we're going to start to look at different body weight movements, we need to understand the relative proportions of the individual. Mm. Um, and it comes obviously more apparent, I think we obviously would like lower body pushings and squats, split squats, etc. Um, but it's even a sort of a certain consideration there, especially when we look at rib cage thickness, rib cage size, arm length, range of movement they go into. So having an understanding of that, again, depends on how we're going to then teach it. Mm. The excursion they're going yeah. to go through with that. Sorry, Karen, look. As I say, it's just occurred to me while we were saying that. Um, that if we are going to be manipulating friction on like a push-up, um, and there's people that, might, might try this like we saw a friend of ours doing like a wall sit for instance and he had a really slidey floor so his feet were sliding away which obviously is going to detract from the exercise if you're doing like push-ups on a slidey floor <laughs> where you start pushing your hands in or out and your hands actually slide that's going to kind of take away from your actual ability to produce force so you'd want to do it on a surface that is immovable so let's say you were shoving your hands inwards doing a push-up you know, your hands wouldn't want to move. You'd probably want to be shoving in quite hard. And obviously the fact that they're not being able to move means there's like kind of an equal and opposite force acting against it. So if you're pushing in, there's kind of a force pushing out, which is friction forces, which is essentially trying to push your, I mean, technically, if depending on where you'd be in a push-up, it'd be trying to push you into um, elbow extension. So you're... Um, you know, your biceps are kicking, but obviously in this instance, obviously if you're trying to kind of adduct your humerus across the midline, um, you, so then would, you'd want to have like a, a concurrent intention to pull your, your upper arm inwards as, as well as just your hands. Um, 
you'd obviously have a force trying to push it out and obviously if the pack is working very hard to pull your upper arm across the midline and you have an additional force that's trying to push it out as well in the form of friction in in conjunction with the weight of your body going into the floor um that's going to be an enhanced challenge to the pec so if we're looking at again before we get into the stuff james is talking about just with people there like how can we make an exercise more challenging how can we increase the magnitude of the force we're dealing with that's how we do it with friction and that's essentially the the process that we're going through there um any any additions there no that's good stuff sweet <clears throat> Um, and I, I, before we even go any further, as well, I think people will be like, "Oh, like what's you know?" But free weights, machines, etc. You know, if I don't have to use friction, that would be even better. And ultimately, you know, if we're trying to train at home with these types of things, and even when we're in the gym, like the idea should be to try and maximize mechanical tension. Um, and you know, and ultimately, hypertrophy itself is a a signaling dependent process, and that signal can come from anything. So it doesn't, you know, it's like we said, there isn't anything magical about free waves, machines, etc. They're just very easy ways and efficient ways of getting that signal in place. So we've now got some potentially inefficient tools available to us. So the question is, how can we make them more efficient? Um, and again, like increasing internal force production is going to be a pretty key factor in that. So this whole idea of intention is going to be pretty useful for, for doing that because it's basically making your muscles contract a lot harder than they normally would without that additional intention. Yeah, and I, th- I think the, 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 the kind of use of the word efficiency is interesting as well, um, because I think it was actually Ben Pekulski, I heard him say this probably seven years ago or something, uh, but he was talking about exercise. And basically what he said was that the goal of bodybuilding is to train in the most inefficient manner possible. And there's actually a lot to that. Like it sounds dumb, but the, like basically any, any time you're trying to train for hypertrophy, hypertrophy specifically, like we're almost always trying to find the ways that we're challenged greatest and hence that our performance is going to be poorest in a given context. And what I mean by that is the goal of powerlifting, sport, CrossFit, etc., is to basically do the most amount of external work with the least amount of internal work possible. Bodybuilding or hypertrophy training is the exact opposite because training is pretty much designed to get the maximum amount of internal work out of the least amount of external work because you're measured, your, your end result is measured solely by your adaptations as opposed to your performance outcomes. So all you care about is the fact that your muscles are getting bigger. Are they growing? If so, you have won. It doesn't matter how you got there. Whereas with, with performance, with, uh, with powerlifting, um, the more muscle you, you've built or the, least, the less muscles you've, you've built, it doesn't actually matter because all that matters is that your squat has gone up. And what led to that? It's, it's totally irrelevant. The same when it comes to CrossFit, totally irrelevant how you got there once you got there. Same if you're a, if you're a runner, you know, your main concern is not whether or not you have um, achieved sufficient mitochondrial biogenesis. You know, like, yes, that's a path to get there. You know, and you can worry about AMPK and all these signaling pathways. But if you did not, if you did not end up with a faster 5K time or 10K time or 20K time, nobody cares how many mitochondria you have. In hypertrophy training, totally different because all people care about is the size of your muscle fibers. And <laughs> that's literally it. doesn't matter what you can do thereafter. So when talking about efficiency and thinking about efficiency, um, it's interesting to think how that plays in with the, the common conversations related to progressive overload. Because if we think about um, 
intention, for example, Luke, uh, you're, you're, you're talking about intention there. So we, we were saying that if we're, if we're going to do a push-up with intention, we're trying to make it as hard as possible, meaning that we would achieve less repetitions, okay? But that goes against the doctrine of progressive overload a lot of the time. And you'll see this if you watch people online when they're using even machines, which you would assume they were trying to perform because there was, it, was, it was an internal stimulus they were looking for. You'll see them on week one of their program. They've got this perfect intent, perfect tempo. Everything looks really strict. It's beautiful. There's three plates on there, and it's just like, yeah, man, you should milk those three plates for the next six months. You know, get an extra rep here and there, boom, you, and, and you'll grow from that. But what you see, if you look back six or eight weeks later, oh, yeah, got up to five plates on the chest press, and this guy's like 80 kilos. It's like, what the fuck? And next thing you, you watch the video, and it's like, there's, there's no intention anymore. It's bouncing off the bottom. It's, there's no tempo. Everything has changed. And even though it, it's, the, it's the apparency of progressive overload, but the reason you got to the, the, the extra weight on the bar is because you changed every other variable. And that would be fantastic if the goal was performance. But when it comes to hypertrophy, it's solely about what's happening internally. So you've actually gone against it by chasing efficiency in performance as opposed to efficiency in adaptation. So I think that's a key distinction. Is, is that something you guys see, a, see coming up in your world? I think just to really sort of touch on that, or the, the reason why we see that is 95% of people in the gym, the egos are too big to not lift that extra weight, not yeah. that five, or if they can get that five plates on the chest press, they're always going to want to to, to make themselves look better over doing the three plates with control with internal intent. So as much as that bodybuilder wants to make everything as inefficient as possible, the 95% that we see out the training there, the egos are just too much in control of what they're doing. They're not going to allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. And don't don't lie, Gaz, because we've all seen you deadlifting in your in your office space, attaching <laughs> unnecessary kettlebells there, like purely ego lifting there. One hundred percent. No, but I think it's cool because if we put, I just pulled up a, a definition of efficient, just so that we can clarify. Because, like, yeah, so the definition that they've given is achieving maximum productivity with minimum wasted effort or expense, which is pretty good. And I think that's when you look at it from the performance perspective, people lifting in the gym how can you achieve maximum productivity? How can you lift the most weight with minimum effort, um, you know, an energetic expense? I think that's essentially what you're referring to there. Where, you know, so when I was saying um, machines and things can create a very efficient challenge, obviously they're creating a maximal challenge without any kind of, with minimal loss of, of you know, essentially how that challenge is being transferred to muscle tissue. So I think that's the two ways you can look at it of, Oh, like well, two, two, two ways we need to look at it. So if people now who took that and they're like, oh, I've got to be inefficient in everything, you can create an efficient challenge, which would be like a very focused challenge. But from your way of performing that, you want to technically be as inefficient as possible. You want to make it as hard for yourself. Um, so, but yeah, so I think that's an important distinction there. But I fully agree with everything you said. I, I think it's, you absolutely nailed that. Um, yeah. And I think, I think as well, like to your, to your point there, like your point about efficiency is, is very much in line with what we could call, you know, just, just accuracy, like with, with, with what you're actually doing. And I think like, you can think about this in terms of like using a shotgun versus using a sniper, you know, you can, you can sure as hell kill a lot of people with a, with a shotgun. Many people have done so, you know, it's in lots of movies, shotguns can be very effective. However, there can be sometimes a lot of pellets that 
basically hit nothing that you were concerned with. Some of those shotgun pellets, they, they achieve, they, the, further, the further you get away, the further they move from your target. And while maybe 90% of the shotgun pellets will hit your target when you're really close, um, the further you get away from your target, the more those shotgun pellets are going to not hit your target than less that are going to hit your target. And this is actually very um, relevant to exercise because if we think about, the, like the, basically the more you create stability or constraint within an exercise the more the exercise becomes accurate and the more similar it is to a sniper rifle because there's just less opportunity for you to to move beyond the constraints of the exercise so if you're in a machine um that's has a fixed path of motion um your your legs are in place your back is in place everything is in place there's no mo- no room for you to move and basically only the target muscle can can work then boom like that's that's your sniper ri- rifle exercise right there Whereas something like, let's say, I don't know, a, a snatch or something, that is a total shotgun if you're talking about hypertrophy. Because basically what you're doing is like, yeah, you're doing a lot of work, but it's, it's, it's very inaccurate for any one muscle. And while there, there's going to be a lot of work there, there's going to be, that work is going to be distributed across many different targets and potentially missing the targets you're, that you're looking for. So any, like obviously everyone listens to this and know that, knows that the snatch isn't necessarily your goal. Um, but, th- but that's one of the ways that I like to think about it. So if we're talking about efficiency, um, a lot of the time when it comes to hypertrophy outcomes, it really does become a question of, of accuracy because then you can start to understand why people still get fantastic outcomes sometimes with you know, exercises that would seem to be just not that effective. Like, you know, for example, if you're doing really high repetition dips or whatever, like you might say that, like we might look at that and say, that doesn't seem like the most efficient way of chasing hypertrophy. But, you know, if you take that to failure, you know, your shotgun approach is still going to work. It's just a question of, you know, when that doesn't work that we really have to start thinking about, maybe we need the sniper rifle. Have we come too far in terms of distance? And that's definitely relevant to guys like yourselves who are, very well trained and who have been, you know, or or Callum even like, is that guy going to keep on growing if he just goes to the park and do, does loads of dips to failure? Like "Mm, maybe, but he might need to be a little bit more accurate, you know? Yeah. I think that's cool. And I think a a way people may relate to that more, we could come up with a cool example of people now doing, you know, for instance, you know, banded rows um, compared to doing a barbell row compared to doing, a Cybex Eagle row. Let's keep it as Cybex Eagles, mate. Like you'd have the, the Cybex Eagle row kind of providing, a, you know, has a very efficient profile from a perspective of it creates a very accurate challenge, focused challenge across the entire range. So there's no real wasted energy. Um, you know, you're contracting more, it provided you set it up well and you've got the individual that fits it well, etc. You're more or less working at maximal capacity for the entire rep. You have the barbell row. Where potentially that's more of a shotgun uh, in the sense of, you know, the profile is heaviest where you're weakest. There's a lot more to juggle in terms of, you know, if your focus is I want to hypertrophy my lats, but you've also got to consider knee position, hip position, spine position, scapula position, neck position, you know, every single joint in the human body potentially. Um, you know, that's more of the shotgun because there potentially be some wasted efforts there. I don't know if you'd agree. And then, um, which doesn't mean you're not going to get the result. It might mean that more could go wrong. There could be, you know, the pellets, like you said, they could hit nothing or they could hit things you didn't want to be hit and cause some collateral damage that you don't necessarily want. Um, and, then, um, and then in the case of the banded row, for instance, again, maybe there's a much more supported environment there, but the actual challenge itself would be 
relatively inefficient in the sense of you'd be getting you know heaviest as you get into that weakened position there's no real challenge at the top of the movement where there's less tension in the band um so you could you know you could argue that there's kind of characteristics of that that are sniper like in the sense of the setup yeah. but maybe you're looking at more of a not necessarily a shotgun but some sort of basic pea shooter <laughs> as opposed to a sniper or an air rifle um i don't know if I, how would you kind of go about comparing those would you agree yeah. I think the uh, I think that the the shotgun analogy does go quite far there because I think sometimes what happens is, especially if people only hear snippets and they listen to people discuss exercise mechanics, they kind of just totally strawman the argument and say, "Oh, so you're saying the barbell rolls is shit exercise and doesn't work?" It's like, no, dude, I didn't say that. You know, no different than a shotgun is is it, that's like saying you know a shotgun isn't going to kill people. Shotgun will kill a lot of people. You know, and when we're talking about that that kind of comparison between the Cybex Eagle row and a barbell row, like is a barbell row going to get most people most of their outcomes in terms of uh, posterior chain hypertrophy the back, of the back in particular? Like, yeah, probably, you know, it's going to get most people there. Absolutely. Um, and that's the same with the shotgun for most of your needs in terms of killing your enemies as they approach your home, shotgun's going to do the job, but it's, it, it comes down to those kind of questions of, all right, what, what about the collateral damage? Like, for example, I'm going out to shoot an intruder on my home, and next thing I shoot my dog as well. Shit, was that good? You know, that wasn't the best outcome and in, the, in the barbell row in that case. If we're trying to train the lats and the scapular retractors and the posterior delts, etc., um, and suddenly my lower back is the limiting factor, and I've got pain in my lower back all the time, and I can, I can no longer even train my lats and my scapular retractors sufficiently because my lower back is the limiting factor, then that, that is, like you said, Luke, that collateral damage. It doesn't mean that the, the, the barbell row is a damaging exercise. It just means that in this context, it's, very, it's far more likely that I'm going to hit my target if I use a Cybex Eagle roll with an anterior constraint um, so that the lower back doesn't have to do as much work, the lower body doesn't have to do as much work, and I can be more accurate. You know? And, and I, think, I think if you can think about that in terms of like the shotgun, the sniper, I think that can take you quite far in terms of a lot of these comparisons. But really just reinforcing that point that anyone that talks about exercise mechanics and inferiority or superiority of exercises, it does not mean that the inferior exercise does nothing. You know, a squat is going to get a hell of a lot of people really big legs. But as professionals, the question always has to be, is there collateral damage? What are the exceptions? And what do we do about those exceptions? You know? Yeah. 100% agree. And just to add to that, if anyone isn't aware that we're not saying that all machines would be that sniper approach. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm just grouping all machines in one there. Some of, some, <laughs> some of them are spud guns, man. <laughs> yeah, some of them are, are snipers that are going to be misfiring seriously. Yeah. seriously well, um, I can't think of an example of that. Um, hammer strength, right? Hammer strength. <laughs> Like plate loaded or any like plate loaded ISO type rows, they're all pretty much shocking. One or two. That's it. That's a shotgun dis disguised as a sniper rifle. <laughs> <laughs> Considering what else can go wrong in those. Some leg presses, man. Some leg presses that have like really uh, inclined seats where you're already in like 120 degrees of hip flexion oh. as you start the rep, man. I fucking hate those shit. <laughs> like who built this like that's that's a prime example of someone just not having any skin in the game like like you have never gotten into that machine and used it clearly like who built this that's actually a good point if it comes you know what we were talking about earlier of 
how how can you you have to have experienced it there's a lot of i think life fitness have just done this with their latest line where they've got some it's been designed by some you know mechanics engineers that have um you know made a really pretty machine and they've hidden quite a lot of the cables etc they don't Um, train (laughs) but yeah but they are the actual functionality of the machine is is regressed significantly because there's a lot of instability with how close the cables are to the axes because they've tried to hide them and stuff so so yeah you you know and that's again whereas they've kind of theoretically gone oh this works really well on paper now put it in the context of actually using it in exercise and it doesn't really work very well at all. Not just life fitness have done that. Multiple gym companies have done that with us five, yeah. ten, fifteen yeah. years. They're they're the ones where you get on a chest press and it looks really fresh and then it's really shaky when you kind of put any lower. Oh. <laughs> but that's so it's so true and it's actually such a good point because like um, I'm a big fan of uh, Nassim Taleb's writing and one of the things that he, sa- he says in, in his in his book as an example of the importance of that kind of skin in the game, like the importance of of having a, like, you know, you, you actually have experience, your decisions actually have ramifications for you. Like there's an example of the, they were redesigning the New York subway one time. And anyone that used the New York subway that read a book and drank a coffee in the morning, they'd be able to put their coffee on the ledge near the window, you know? So boom, functionality, that's the number one priority for someone riding the train in the morning. And they redesigned it. And basically what they did was they gave it this slight slant to the edge in the window because it looked more aesthetic. It looked better. It looked prettier when they were advertising it. They could say, hey, look at the New York subway. But for the actual user experience, the problem was that I can't put my coffee there now and now I can't read a book and drink my coffee at the same time. And the exact same thing applies to resistance training machines. Some of the prettiest machines that you walk into a gym and you're like, oh, look at this leisure club. You see it, especially in high-end gyms sometimes. It's like, oh, this is, they look so pretty and aesthetic and you don't see the cables hanging around or anything, but it's so clear that no one used them, you know? And it, it would be like we were saying at the start, Luke, you know, about the, the ice cream um, and appreciating the culture of something and having some experience within the culture. You can't design good ice cream having never tasted ice cream and just knowledge of chemicals. It doesn't get you there, you know? And it's the exact same thing when it comes to exercise. So if anyone happens to be listening from an exercise design company, please train. You know, just start by training. It's the best thing you can do. So true. So true. But it's not just enough to, to train, though. They need to understand of exercise mechanics. Yes, one would hope so. <laughs> Many of the gym companies that are around nowadays, all the people who produce them, they do train. They just don't have a full understanding of really at a deep level what's going on. They're just, in a sense, in copying previous lines of equipment mm-hmm. rather than, yeah, I say, that then we think popular um, but don't actually aren't actually efficient or effective at producing the result that we want. Yeah, see, I'm, I'm over here in, in Ireland and we basically don't have, like, well, not many of the gyms, especially where I'm from, we don't, get, we don't get that experience of like, oh, there's new equipment out, let's go and try it. It's just not a thing. It's all old equipment. So I'd definitely be interested to, to know what, what, what new machines have come out in the last five years that uh, James Sutton is not approving of. <laughs> you don't have to say it on the podcast. Probably all of them. <laughs> all of them. There's, there is a reason why in the um, studio that it's all older kit. It's cool. it's cool stuff, man. Apart from the Cybex Bravo. How did, I've never actually used the, the, and sorry for the listeners for going off track, but I've never used the Kaiser pneumatic stuff. How, how's that? It's great. Like the, the path of motion on, on some of it isn't optimal. And it, I'm already speaking, or previously before lockdown, I was speaking to someone about getting a few things adjusted on them. But yeah, the experience to not deal with sort of any inertia and to take out inertial effects. Um, it's something that takes a bit of getting used to 
mm. initially. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great, great sensation to play back and forth between traditional weighted machines and then this stuff working with air pressure. That's cool. And is it fully, is it fully isokinetic? Like the resistance is constant as, as much as, as you, as you apply force or is there settings to it or how does it work? No, there's no settings to it. They've tried yeah. to make it as a constant resistance. Yeah. Um, but there is certain parts within the range that say drop off uh, as well, but they've tried to design the stuff because with the hydraulic as obviously that compresses, the tension goes up. So they've tried to offset that with how they've designed it. So the resistance stays constant, but there's certain things you can do with certain machines like the, the pull down. If you sit on the floor to make it go through a bigger excursion, then you can get a great profile where it drops off as you come down in that contract position. So there's little tweaks and stuff you can do to try and improve the profile. Um, but they didn't understand where they want it heavier or lighter throughout a range. They've just tried to create a similar similar resistance throughout the whole excursion. That's cool, man. And do they do they have any way of uh, telling you how much force you have applied? Like, can you track it? Because I imagine that'd be really cool if you could have that for your clients. Like if you were using Kaiser equipment that there was a little screen on front that was like, you are now applying 200 Newtons of force or whatever. So that, you know, keep them accountable. I think it'd be cool. Yeah, so on all of the, the newer kits that you pay a lot of money for, look <laughs> at all that. I'm, I'm yeah. my, it's old, but it's still exactly the same. Yeah. Like leg press, the leg extension I've got, they still produce the exact same ones. Mine are 20 years old. Um, but on there, there's just little dials that will tell you 100 kilos, 150 kilos, whatever it is on there. So you, you can't be precise if you're really trying to track your numbers. Um, no, ours, the ones we've got, Halo, are digital. So they have it in, them. but they and they like count your reps and stuff, which is quite good. But the, um, but yeah, James is technically better. They they've regressed on the the design um, in the sense of like James is a um, isolateral um, on like his leg extension, chest press, etc. Like whereas the one the newer ones seem to be all kind of fixed. Um, like you know, so if, you know if you move the left one, left hand on the chest press, the right goes with it, um, which is you know fine to some degree. But James's ones I think are surprisingly cooler, despite being. 20 years older so in, ter- in terms of programming then if you're using pneumatic resistance do you do you set yourself a rep target a time target because like obviously it, it could just be an infinite drop set to nothing couldn't it if you're just but you can still like, regulate the resistance i mean you can do it as an all set okay um Oh, so you, you you can actually set the resistance to a yeah, yeah, you can like pick, you, yeah you like pump it up to a start point and then you can go um so yeah, Still, or you can do disgusting drop sets and alter it mid mid set mid rep. It's quite cool. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm picturing. Like basically, like you start at like 100 kilos of force, and you just end up like you don't give up until you just have five kilos of force left, like 30 minutes set kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> that's the reason. <laughs> yep. So the question is, how can people recreate that at home? no but i think like i don't know what no it'd be a good thing to maybe talk about on some of the movements now now that we mention it so we go back um maybe inertial effects on certain movements i know if we could compare certain body weight movements that might seem relatively kind of harmless um at first glance i'm thinking like a jump squat or a, a, a jump lunge or something like what are the things that we'd want to consider there in in terms of cueing awareness and intention and um you know comparing them to other forms of exercise as well like if we were just doing a regular barbell lunge or like a cable lunge or something like that 
what do we reckon mm-hmm. just with that it's understand whatever principles and theory you've followed when you've been in the gym make sure you can sit continue with that yeah. if you've done everything nice and controlled um with internal attention in the gym don't start completely doing different random things at home bounding around jumping up and down because the forces involved in that are going to be completely different to what you have been doing in the gym and the progression of forces is it go from a two to a ten straight up from one day to the next and your body's not going to be able to deal with that straight away so it's understanding that how to progress force that if you are going to for any reason you feel it's important to do parametric type movements knowing how to progress on onto them would be a key consideration yeah and, and me and patty talked about this in the podcast last week because basically i was trying to find find the middle ground here because what i was seeing you know some people talk about on on social media was like uh you know uh, don't do don't don't start doing all these bodyweight exercises with any you know, elements of explosiveness, like a jump lunge or something, and because you're going to get injured or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I can, I can see the point there. However, it's, we should always be keeping in mind, like you can use smart training principles and bring these things in if you want to. Okay. A jump lunge and a jump squat, they're not going to be best for hypertrophy. Okay. We don't need to tease that out. Like we know that that's not going to be best for hypertrophy. However, if during this time you want to bring in exercises similar to that, um, because you want to get in, I don't know, more cardiorespiratory work or whatever, but for whatever reason, you just enjoy it, then you have to do so while keeping basic ex- exercise principles in mind. So you will have trained with leg presses and lunge variations before. So you have some tolerance of those forces, of forces to those muscles that are going to be involved. However, it may not have been in this specific manner. And that's important to, to understand because if you've never done explosive work, then it is new. And no matter how many sets of stiff-legged RDLs you've done before, nothing like they, they don't pre- prepare you for maximum level sprinting. And any bodybuilder will know that. Go and try and run 100 meters, max effort, um, having never run before, and your hamstrings will absolutely not thank you. You know, they'll be absolutely goosed. So if you are going to bring in this stuff, um, use your basic exercise principles, okay? Start with a little bit. You know, if you're, if you're going to bring in some jumping lunges or jump squats or whatever for, for high reps because you, you just want to and you have nothing else to access for whatever reason, then you do so in a smart manner. So rather than saying, I'm actually going to go on to the, the CrossFit wad of the day and see what they're doing and I'm going to see if I can do 200 burpees, 200 jump squats and 200 jump lunges. Man, you're going to be sorer after that than you will have ever been after any of your controlled hypertrophy workouts where you were like, I'm going to stay in my active range, I'm going to pause and all this stuff. Because it's totally different. And anything novel is going to lead to some sort of adverse response, especially if it's excessive. But if you say to yourself, I'm going to do 10 burpees, I'm going to do 10 jump squats and 10 jump lunges, is that going to be harmful? No. Hopefully, hopefully you would have some level of adaptations to that already now if you're a 130 kilo bodybuilder who can't touch your toes i can't guarantee that that is the case but for most trainees doing a bit of that isn't going to be harmful however if you're trying to just like you said jumping up from from two to ten you know you're going straight to 100 percent, trying to see i wonder how many burpees i can do it's probably not a great idea unless they're consistently in your program just like you wouldn't get a beginner in on day one and say, yeah, we're going to do German volume training on bench press. Like that's dumb. You know, we wouldn't get someone to do that. Um, But we also wouldn't say that bench presses are injurious. We would say that in particular contexts, when they're applied in an excessive manner, they could potentially increase risk of injury. So, so yeah, there's a spectrum there for sure. 
I think, yeah, and I think it's one thing as well. I think there's so many people going from zero to 100 on these things. Like, I've never done jump squats before, but I'm going to do them to failure. Yeah, and it's like, and, and again, because they, they appear relatively harmless, like innocuous at first. You're kind of like, oh, you know, it's a jump squat. I'm using my body weight. No, nah, not too big a deal. And then you, you boil it down to, okay, let's say in the gym you were doing controlled lunges with maybe 20 kilos in each hand. So, and let's say you weigh, you know, let's say you weighed 100 kilos so that's you know technically 140 kilos of mass but that's probably it um in in terms of you know what's going into the floor coming back at you the combined you know mass of you and the dumbbells and the reactive forces coming back from each foot um and the but then you transition into a jump lunge i'm not using that much but then you factor in you know the inertial effects of your 100 kilos accelerating to the floor plus gravity and yeah you know so you probably potentially lifting similar i mean there'll be people that can do the maths on that it depends on how fast you're moving everything like that but you know you're going you're doing that sort of same similar movement very different in that respect you know you've got some much greater inertial effects you're then having to kind of decelerate that you're potentially getting pulled into more extreme joint ranges um and you and it's something you've never done before and you're going to like failure that's probably a far higher risk you know exercise than doing lunges with 20 kilos with a controlled tempo yes there's more load with the dumbbells at face value but that's probably not what your your body's actually experiencing um and and again you consider the extreme ranges you're getting into at the hip and the knee particularly in the rear leg and the ankle to some degree as well it's something that I think there's a lot of coaches now being quite reckless with and they're just saying, oh, fuck it, I'm PTing people at home and I'll get them to do burpees and into jump lunges, into jump squats because that's all they have available. And it's safe because they're body weight movements. But again, they don't necessarily possess the, the understanding to be able to make that judgment in an ethical manner, especially when it's their clients that are potentially going to suffer for it. So... I'd say, yeah. You're giving a sense to listeners that if they did want to progress onto a, a jump, lunge, jump, split, squat, how they potentially do that. I think like looking at it from a force perspective first, if we're looking at an exercise progression, we know we can progress each exercise within itself. But if we look at a split squat first, then progressing a split squat into a reverse lunge, then progressing a reverse lunge into a forward lunge, um, and then maybe progressing it into a drop lunge where you're starting from a six inch box or something and dropping down and then looking at your your jump split squat within each one of having I said there four or five exercises the force tolerance has been progressed within each and I know each one of them looking at slightly different things when you're bringing friction and other things into it but if we're looking just looking at force progression and someone wanted to any reason to get that end goal of to do a jump split squat um, then that would be a nice way to progress them through yeah and I, th- I think one of the things that come like obviously it's a very specific point to this exercise but one of the things that comes up when we when we talk about lunges is that the, the rear leg is basically forgotten about like people pretend that it that it's even or that it's not there because everything is just on the front leg and that's what people think about whereas like you you can't just go from doing like only leg presses and you've never done any lunge variations and you've never trained hip flexion before and do the same level of volume on let's say rear foot elevated split squats or jumping lunges like you're saying because there is a new force there you know there is some a new challenge that you're dealing with and what you'll find is that 
if you are someone who has never done lunge variations um, very often, or you've never done split squat variations, and you go into this jump lunge version or variation, you'll actually be a lot less prepared for that um, from a, a hip flexion perspective, whether it's rectus femoris or iliopsoas, they're being challenged. Um, and you're going to be less prepared for that than someone who has done lots of lunge variations, lots of rear foot elevated split squat variations. So you always have to ask yourself like what your training history is when you come into doing any new sort of novel task, because sometimes people look at people training and they're doing particular exercise and they're like, geez, I'd never be able to do that. My shoulders would hate me if I did that. Um, whereas they might be looking so far from that person might be just so far away from where they are now that they're not considering what that person's training history was. Um, so like you're talking about James, there should always be some sort of progression to you getting to a certain level with any exercise, you know, whether it's maximal sprints, like if, if, if I was encouraging a client to do maximal sprint training, especially after an injury and injury rehab, we're generally going to get there over a number of weeks. It's not just a case of me saying, right, let's go out and see how fast you can do hundred meters. Like that, that's just not what you do. You know, you build up gradually, you ensure that the body has sufficient tolerance for the forces. And that's the way that almost all sports apply training. However, in the resistance training world, very often, there's almost just this built in like AMRAP mindset. Like I'm just going to see what I can do. Um, whereas it, it's probably not the smartest approach a lot of the time. Mm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think there's also, you know, just following on from that there's there's a lot of you know when we're introducing these exercises people have got to you know coaches have got to remember that they've got to make these things relevant to their clients goals and the individuals you know that for instance if someone's like i want to build muscle in my legs i'm not going to give them a jump squat you know and but there's a lot of coaches that are they're like oh jump squats jump lunges they give hypertrophy really because that's not the case in in um research and also you know, when you understand motor unit recruitment, mechanical tension, how we produce that, you know, and how that feeds into, um, you know, the actual process of hypertrophy, but contracting muscle tissue. I mean, I know you're familiar with this. We got familiar with this, guys. The, um, um, you know, we want slower contractions where we're contracting at a very slow velocity and, you know, producing a lot of force, you know, under fatigue conditions. And, that we might get there with a jump squat or a jump lunge or something, but it's a very inefficient and risky way to get there. And there's probably better ways to do it. And, you know, even I spoke about this on the weekend when we did the COFIT um, conference that, you know, there's research where they've do use like no load resistance training where they've yeah. just got people to like mimic a bicep curl with by maximally contracting internally as much as they can and having a massive co-contraction around the joint like that. For instance, I think we'd have more merit than doing a jump lunge or a jump squat, um, and it'd be a lot safer. Um, but again, it's kind of people being led by things they don't necessarily understand, or they haven't studied, or they haven't read, and you know, therefore, kind of giving clients things that are not only irrelevant to their goal but carry a very high risk. And I think you've got to be able to, you know, if you're an exercise professional and someone's coming to you with a problem that they need solving or a goal that they want to reach, same thing. Um, they you, you know you, sh you should be well versed and well read enough to know what actually applies to that goal not just kind of taking the shotgun approach that we mentioned earlier i mean i'll just chuck this in i'll play for the best because i've seen this other guy doing it on his instagram or something like that um so yeah i think there's a big call from that perspective that people need to re make sure that what they're giving clients is relevant would you agree Yes, sir. 
Sure. I think like that that comment regarding the the goal is just so incredibly important, and that 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 goes for that goes for all goals. Like we shouldn't just assume that everyone is in the gym for hypertrophy either. You know, it could be absolutely other reasons, and it could be the case that a burpee just happens to be what you need. You you could be training for military preparation, and as part of your Navy SEALs buds training, you need to be able to do um, a thousand burpees in a day. Like I don't know about you, but it's way riskier for me to say that you go off to that training unprepared than for us to actually prepare for it. So preparation is something that you always have to think about. And any, any, like there's, there's, there's a risk that comes with doing nothing. And that's important. There's a risk that comes with being unprepared for something. And that's especially the case with, with athletes um, or with anyone that's going into quite a volatile environment. Because when we talk about hypertrophy training, like it is quite a comfortable world. You know, you're basically, as we said, you're just always chasing adaptation. So you can basically do anything once you apply force and you never really have to take risk, which is why it's kind of pointless when you do see people taking unnecessary risks just for the sake of, of an adaptation. So the risks of hypertrophy training are mostly or should be relatively low. Whereas things like military training, sport training, where there's an element of uncertainty. Like when I change direction on the pitch and my studs get stuck in and my knee twists, like I need to be prepared for that. You need to be prepared for those challenges because they're going to come, you know, and, and we can't just shy away from them. Whereas in hypertrophy training, you can shy away from them. You know, you're, you're able to just kind of be like, yeah, I'm just going to do a cable chest fly and nobody can tell me that I shouldn't do this because it's just, that's all I need to deal with. You know, people can say, oh, you're a pussy. You're not prepared for the real world. But then you just say, oh, yeah, well, I don't need to be prepared for the real world. And, and that's why considering <laughs> what the actual goal is, is, is quite important. And that goes in both directions for sure. I think when we, just to add to that, though, um, the risk that you're sort of looking at there within the sporting environment, within the, whether it's training for the military or SAS or whatever it means. Yeah. They're acute there at this moment in time, whereas the risks that we might look at within the gym, within bodybuilding, we're not going to become aware of them until we've probably been training for five, 10, if not 20 years. Mm, yeah, more so chronic versus acute. Break down the, say, we're not going to get that, them injuries and stuff like that until we've been training for a while at a certain intensity. Um, whereas everything we're doing outside the gym that you mentioned there is, so yeah, you're going to dislocate your knee from playing football because the, the, you haven't prepared for that or whatever the, the injury or the, the outcome might be. Um, there's no idea within the gym that risk is in that moment unless you can keep your ego in check. Uh, but it might well be sort of 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the line if you haven't been performing things optimally for your own structure. Yeah, like I mean, if you look at if you look at risk factors for injury, you know, you can you can talk all day about like, oh, is it this exercise? Is it that exercise? But ultimately, like the best way to not get injured is the is to not get injured. Like the main risk factor for recurring injury is getting injured in the first place. So it, it does come back to what you're saying that like these things do mount and they and they accumulate over time. So if you're that person that you know, you injured your back when you were 20 and you've kept recurring, you've gotten this recurring injury over time, but you just keep doing the same thing all the time. You go into the gym, you do your five rep max at the start of your workout on deadlifts every week. And you never considering, consider mo moderating the intensity, maybe, maybe moderating the range of motion or the exercise choice, etc. Then you are dealing with, like you said, those chronic <clears throat> cumulative risks, as opposed to one single acute risk, because realistically, like no, no one or very few people are actually going to like die in the gym because they're 
back snaps in half and their spinal cord gets severed. Like it doesn't really happen. <laughs> there have been some rare cases of things happening like that, but, but those cumulative, cumulative chronic risks, they can definitely creep up, up on you if you're, if, if you're not careful or you're not, you're not thinking about them. Yeah. There was a um, good quote by Tom that I wrote down from these videos where he said, sports are why we have sports medicine and it's <laughs> supposed to be medicine, which I don't necessarily fully agree with because I think we'd have medicine exercise medicine regardless of whether sports exists or not but i you know it's the thing of you know there's so many extreme cases of this of you know people injure themselves doing a sport and the sports medicine the sports physiotherapist whatever kind of goes okay you know we're gonna we're gonna you know remedy this and rehab it and get it back to where it needs so you can get, go and do it all again <laughs> <laughs> no so you know it's like it's so negligent when you think about it like that it's like yeah we know what fucked this guy up and you know it's gonna happen again but we'll get him back to where he wasn't he'll get to do it again and whatever that's, that's but, sport <laughs> that's where sport isn't exercise people technically of like sports sport sports com- competition that isn't um exercise and there's a lot of people that take their advice from and they're kind of they base their you know coaches that base their exercise prescriptions off what they read about in sports and what sport to, you know coaches and therapists etc doing i think that's a risky route to go down when you consider the context that that's usually been given in um, that advice and that's especially the case for like most of our general population clients or people who aren't competing in bodybuilding because like there's just no timeline you know as in you're never in a rush with with exercise if you're not if you're not competing for something because you don't have to be prepared for a particular date because obviously there's an element of risk that comes into exercise training when there is a particular event that you have to be prepared for because whether it's training volume or training intensity or the dietary process or the drug use or whatever there's all these different things that accumulate into in in these these small little risks to bigger risks because there's a date there is a thing whereas with exercise for most people like it just doesn't it doesn't really matter that much you know yeah you're you're going to get some hypertrophy outcomes you're going to improve your health you're going to get yourself you know a stronger heart uh, more compliant blood vessels all these different things but it there's just not a rush you know i mean you don't have to add five pounds to your bench this week like you just don't you know if your shoulder's a bit sore cool you know pull back do a different exercise just doesn't really matter you know i mean <laughs> most of exercise just doesn't matter and can be replaced with other things um unless of course you have particular thing for what you're training which is like your quote on the last one of these uh, all exercises are made up <laughs> I love that. it's just made up like yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know people are oh, but i have to do this exercise I, you know it's like well realistically there's another way you could figure out how to apply force to that tissue very similar but it might involve tables well, well. i've actually been there before where i've had that attachment to exercises yeah, same. Yeah. It's a long time to get out of thing that I've, oh, I've got to do. Then I'd get injured somewhere for I, and I'd want to get back to performing that movement, that lift. Yeah. Um, so even at myself as a relatively yeah. exercise professional, I know I've had an attachment in previous years. Um, so I know many other coaches would have the same thing too. I still do to the Cybex Bravo. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's, that's the only attachment that's allowed. Right. I don't. I don't think that carries much risk. To be fair, <laughs> tied into your cable machine. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no. I think I think we're all guilty of that. And then, you know, that's again because even at the higher levels, and it comes back to the culture thing that we we spoke about. You know, even when you have this understanding, you still will develop the kind of 
a reliance or an attachment whether it's emotional or not to certain movements like i and based on the fact that you enjoy them you enjoy other yep. fields and i agree like I, that happens to me all the time like i'll get into a routine with certain exercise and you go into the gym and someone's on the machine you're like for fuck's sake <laughs> you're like, i know i could do something else but i just like that machine <laughs> Yeah. And, and we have come around full circle, like just reinforcing that point that while we try and while it would be lovely in a perfect uh, world, you just can't detach uh, the exercise from the culture, you know, and I mean, and again, I don't think we should because ultimately, many people are, are motivated to get to the gym. Um, every day and to do their training because they watch videos of people who are part of the culture, whether it be Dorian Yates or anyone else. You know, you watch your blood and guts training video before you go to the gym and that might be a big part of why you actually put in the effort in the first place when you show up to the gym. So if we were to totally strip that back and say, all right, could you, could you definitely put in the same level of effort on a Cybex Bravo with nothing else, with no one else in the gym, with no music, with no training videos or anything for two decades on end, do you think most people would achieve progression in the end using just the Cybex Bravo off their own intrinsic motivation? Realistically, they're not going to because it's the culture that reinforces it. It's all the things that come with the culture, the rituals, the Monster Factory t-shirts, those, those really ugly bodybuilding shoes that people wear that I don't understand why they wear them. They're like boots. Um, you know, All these things are part of the culture and ultimately it reinforces a lot of good, positive things that get people to go to the gym, to put in the effort, but again, reinforcing the importance of being able to step back away from that and say, could there be something I'm missing? Is there something I could take from somewhere else? And that's ultimately how you become a better professional and a better trainee if, you, if you're just interested in your own training, I think. Yeah. That's a perfect summary there. It's almost perfect. That was awesome. Yeah, I think that, that sums up well. Let's not even repeat that. <laughs> what Gaz has basically said, no. Um, that was, yeah, that was perfect. And I think that would be a good place to wrap it up then. Yep. That was a lovely... I think that, that was basically a discussion about the culture of exercise with yep. mechanics thrown in critiquing certain things. Physical culture and exercise mechanics. There you go. Boom. <laughs> That's the line. That's Boom. Nice. And love for a Bravo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> only justified emotional attachment <laughs> no. um, what I'm wondering though is right Dorian Yates supposedly he used to have a bottle of coke and a Mars bar after every workout so I'm just waiting for that to get trending why is no one doing it yet you know a very good point I want to see everyone doing that well Dorian did it <laughs> you must do it <laughs> that is quite funny I didn't know that oh I mean post workout yeah, I F Y M, bro. Easy, too easy. I mean, he was so he was the first, like the, the first instigator of I F Y M. Dorian invented Dorian. if it fits your macros. Yep, he did it all. He did it all. <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming, people. Um, where can everyone find you, guys? Uh, yeah, so if you're interested in me, my work, best thing you can do is just follow uh, follow triage method. We put out information and we're a coaching business myself and mr patrick farrell um so yeah there's there's huh new coaches now man yeah so we have lee mr lee hand as well is working uh with one-to-one -one online coaching and miss breed long is also doing the female uh, online online group coaching um so yeah those those professionals as well competent professionals and they're on the the triage team too uh but yeah you can follow me on my social media if you want skinny guys um I basically haven't been posting much other than my 
books for the last couple of weeks, to be honest. Um, because I've been, I basically took a bit of an Instagram hiatus. I will start posting some training stuff again eventually. I'm in college, so I kind of have to prioritize that, you know, along with work. But yeah, skinny guys, or if you want to contact me, message me directly, Gary at triagemethod.com. Um, and you can, we can have a discussion about anything you want. Boom. There we go. And everyone knows where they can find you, James. Hopefully. <laughs> James. Um, sweet. So yeah, thank you for coming on boys. And, um, I'm sure we'll be doing another one of these again if both of you are down because I think people enjoyed them and I enjoyed that. So. Yeah, I enjoyed I enjoyed that discussion. Yeah, that was really good. Anyway, cheers guys. Cheers Luke and guys. <laughs> cheers James and Luke.